Show number 15 of I Read Comics with your fabulous host, Lena Taylor. Diamond salted almonds with wasabi and soy sauce flavoring. That is what Lena is eating this week. And Lena's feeling like Jeremy from Yellow Submarine right now, which is to say, so much to do, so little time. So I'm going to try to get through some stuff very quickly before I get to the main point of today's podcast, which is an interview with Brad Rader, who's a wonderfully funny guy. And he has some very interesting things to say about Main co- mainstream comics, gay porno comics, and comics in general. He was a wonderful interview. I'm so happy I get to talk with him. So let me try and go through my list of things very quickly. First, thanks to everybody who's been sending me email. I feel like I now have my own little squadron of fans out there who are sending me notes about, oh, boy-on-boy action in regular comics and instances of incest. Ever since we talked about incest at YaoiCon, people have been saying, hey, there's some incest in this story. So I, I feel really special that people are noticing when there's incest and letting me know about it. So thanks, everybody. It's great. Um, also, when I went to the library this week, I walked in. They now have a graphic novel section. I was so excited. I was standing there looking at it going, wee! And they have a bunch of Ultimate stuff. They have a bunch of manga there, some other stuff that I checked out that I'll be talking about next week. But very cool to have a whole graphic novel section. And they even have a special little um, sticker that they put on the books in my library. They, they try to put these little pictures on the sticker so it's easy for people to recognize what kind of book it is. So for the graphic novels, it's two little word balloons right over each other. They're empty word balloons, but still, it looks very cool. So hey, graphic novels at the library couldn't be better. Also wanted to announce that the comic book database is finally live and public. I had mentioned it in passing on another show, and the creators, um, specifically Chris, the creator, didn't want anybody to talk about it too much before it was out of beta and live, and it is. So it's at comicbookdb.com. It's a public database that's like a wiki. That is, everybody can enter information into it once you've registered, and everybody tries to work to improve the quality of it, and the goal is for it to be a huge comprehensive database of every comic book that there ever was. And it has synopses and information on the artists and writers, of course, and an image gallery. It is a really wonderful thing. And after I get done doing this podcast tonight, I'm going to go enter in volume one of Aquaman because nobody has done it yet. And I'm on a little Aquaman kick these days. Um, A couple more things, and then I'm going to get to a review, which is actually about Alan Moore's top 10. So just hang on for a second. Um, I was also um, a guest recently on two different podcasts. I got to talk to my buddies at Comic Geek Speak um, with another female geek, Catherine, who's going to be on this show in a couple of weeks to talk about Harlan Ellison. We had a really good time doing that. I put a link in at my blog so you can go find it, listen to it. And then I was just on Bruce Rosenberger's Comics Cast along with um, Mike of... um, Uh, People are DJs and Chris from Collected Comics Library. And we had a really great time talking about all kinds of different things. And I hope I get to do that one again, too. So it's fun being a guest on other people's shows. You don't have to do show notes or really prepare for it or anything. It's cool. Um, And I wanted to talk also about something very exciting. Um, For me personally, they've announced that there's going to be an animated Conan feature, which is going to combine 2D and 3D animation. I'm hoping that they're going to do it in a way that's similar to Ghost in the Shell that I talked about on the last show, where um, the backgrounds are 3D and the characters are more like regular 2D hand-drawn animation. Um, So I'm really pretty psyched about that. They have Ron Perlman doing the voice of Conan and um, Marge Helgenberger doing the voice of Valeria, which I think is going to be great. My only reservation is that the way it's being phrased is that there's a love story in it between Conan and Valeria. And, you know, that's not really in the story. They're in it together, and he's clearly pursuing her but I don't think it's a love story. I think it's more like a lust story. So I hope that they play up that aspect of it and they don't make it all gooey. And as I've said to everybody I've ever talked to about this, I really hope that the people who are making this go and look at Barry Smith's art for Red Nails. That's the story that they're doing. Because if they don't, they're going to be throwing away something really good. Um, he did such an amazing job of bringing that to life, envisioning what was in Robert E. Howard's words. So I'm really, really hoping that they do that. 
And then one more little tidbit. Um, I talked when I was reviewing Torso, I was talking about this technique that some artists use whereby they repeat the same image from panel to panel and only the words change, but there's something about it that makes you actually see different expressions in the face of the, the character because of the, the words being different. And I was wondering what kind of technique it was, and a couple people said, you know, that's called being lazy. And um, yeah, it is being lazy to some people, but I think the way Bendis was doing it in Torso was more um, of what's called the Kuleshov effect, and I hope I'm saying that right. This was named after a Russian filmmaker who um, did this in a montage. So he basically took headshots of um, a matinee idol at the time, and this was in like 1918, right? So he took these headshots, and then he put other shots before and after them, and it could be something like um, a child's face, and then later on there would be a child's coffin. And the people who saw it didn't realize that the expression on his face was exactly the same each time they showed him, and they perceived that the expression on his face changed depending on the context of it. So this is a real psychological thing that happens, and of course it's a technique that gets used in film editing all the time, and it's used in comics to great effect in something like Torso. It's also used in a comic I'm going to talk about at the end of the show, which is called Get Your War On, which uses it for a very different effect. But anyway... um, Kuleshov effect. That's what it's called. It has a name, an actual name and a technique and everything. So I'm very glad to have known about that. So thank you, my friend Ira in Barcelona, who sent that in. I'm so happy to know about it. So let's talk about top 10. Um, Everybody in the world read top 10 before I did, much like everything else that comes out by Alan Moore. Everybody else has completely read it before I did, but that's okay. I don't really mind. Um... Top 10 came out in like 99, 2000, and then it was collected into trades, two books of trades in around, um, I think just 2002 was when it came out. And I got the trades. They were at my library, so I read them. And it was really nice to just read them all at one time, not have to wait for all the issues to come out. And um, I will recap very quickly because maybe there are a few people who don't know what Top 10 is, but it's... um, a cop story set in Neapolis, which is entirely populated by superheroes. They have crimes to solve. And each member of this precinct has their own superpowers, and it's just about how they interact with each other. So it's really like a superpowered um, Hill Street Blues. And there's, I guess, if you don't like cop stories, you probably won't get too turned on by this because it really is a cop story, despite all of the um, superheroish elements to it. Plain and simple, it's a cop story. There are two big crimes that they have to solve, and they end up resolving them at the end. There have been a couple of follow-ups or spin-offs, actually, not really sequels, and there's a prequel as well. haven't seen those, but I would really like to get hold of them from my library because they look very interesting. So, written by Alan Moore, illustrated by Gene Ha and Xander Cannon. Beautiful, beautiful artwork. And uh, if you've seen them, you know that basically every single panel in this is jam-packed with jokes, comic book jokes and pop culture jokes. In fact, there's so much jammed into each panel that people have had to go and write annotations so that people could get all the jokes. And I will admit that I didn't get most of the stuff that was going on. And after I read the annotations, I would pick up some stuff and say, oh, I see what that was. And there was a lot of stuff that just went right over my head. Um, So I am putting a link into the big annotations that you can find online done by a guy named Jess Nevins, who I actually sort of know from Mystery Science Theater fandom way, way back in the old days of Mystery Science Theater fandom. I was like, oh yeah, Jess Nevins, I know him. I used to interact with him on a Usenet group. So um, go check out the annotations if you haven't already. It's pages and pages and pages of stuff which will take you a really long time to go through. It took me hours to get through all of it, but it's really helpful in understanding it. As I read through the annotations and I looked at the art, I was wondering if it wasn't too much of a gimmick. You know, the story is what it is. It's a cop story. Like I said, there are two big, two main plot threads that you have to follow and all the stuff that happens in between. And it can be told very straightforwardly, and they chose not to do it that way, but instead to really play on all of the jokes that go along with it. And it gets a little tiring after a while, I have to say, as much as I like it. I was getting a little overwhelmed by everything that was crammed into every single panel. And, you know, it's 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 a gimmick and it's a good one, but I think it went on maybe just a little bit too long. I don't know if 
the uh, subsequent top ten spinoffs like Smacks or some of the other stuff has as much stuff in it like that, jokes and uh, funny drawings and all that. Um, but I would like to find out. So I express my, my hesitation about doing something like that for so many issues constantly. It is a triumph of art and references, that's for sure. Just about anything that you could ever think of connected with comic books or science fiction or even something like Mystery Science Theater is going to be in there. And there's even a little Star Trek thing in there, which made me very happy, too. So there were a couple other things I wanted to talk about with this. Um, first of all, I want to talk about the female characters in particular, because because they're special to me. <laughs> One thing is that there's a bioengineered female cop named Girl One, and she has a great body, which you can see all of, because... When you first see her, it looks like she's got some kind of body paint on her, or maybe it's a very skin-tight outfit, um, and it's constantly changing color. So you think, well, it's some kind of costume, kind of like Rorschach's face mask in um, Watchmen. And then as the story goes on, you find out she's actually naked, and she just has the ability to shift the colors and the uh, reflection, the luminescence of her skin, so it makes her look like she's wearing something when she's actually not. Now... Let me just say, if there was a woman who was naked and the only thing that was different about her was that her skin color was changing, you would know she was naked. It is utterly impossible to me to have people express surprise as her partner does, her female partner, Ermageddon, who doesn't realize she's naked until girl one says, oh yeah, and I'm naked, and then they have a little funny argument about it. How could you not know she's naked? You can see her nipples. Um, she eats, so we know that even though she's a bioengineered girl, she has normal bodily functions. Doesn't anybody notice that she has, I don't know, pubic hair? <laughs> or if she's sitting in a chair that she has a butt crack that you can actually see? It's entirely implausible that anybody could think that she had clothes on. So I just need to say that. And I was sad at what happened to her, but everybody knew she was naked, okay? just You can't get away with that. The other female character that I wanted to talk about was Jackie Phantom, who uh, is called Phantom because she can um, shift herself so that she become invisible and walk through walls and stuff, which is cool. And she is, I was going to say a lesbian, but no, Jack Phantom is a dyke because she has short hair and she's kind of butch and she's always kind of butching it around everybody. So she's very stereotypically a dyke. The thing that I didn't like about the way her character was portrayed is that she hits on every woman who comes within like a hundred feet of her before she finds out whether they're gay or straight. And maybe this is Alan Moore's point because step back for a second. The whole precinct, as I said, is like Hill Street Blues. So it's like all of the stereotypical cop characters are there. There's like the hot-headed guy, there's the, the older captain, there's the new kid on the block. It's every single cop stereotype you ever see in a cop show. And um, there's always got to be the lech, because that's the way it goes with these stories. And so Jack Phantom is the lech coming on to everybody. So is that his point, is to show that if there has to be a Lech character, let's make it into a, a woman? Um, and he clearly couldn't make her a straight woman who hits on every man, because then she'd just be a slut, and, you know, I guess you couldn't do that, or there wouldn't be a point to that. Um, so they have to make her a, a, a dyke and have her come on to every woman. And the thing I don't like about that is that it totally plays into people's stereotypes about gay folks. That just because somebody's a lesbian, it means that they're going to hit on every straight woman, you know, within a hundred feet. I mean, come on. It also struck me as a little weird that this is a superhero society, slightly futuristic, and yet everybody has a huge problem with the gay characters. Like, what's up with that? I don't see any other kinds of prejudice really going on there. Um, there's a little bit of racial prejudice. There's more um, mutant-type prejudice, which you would expect. But, you know, can we just get over this? So that that really bothered me, that she's constantly shown hitting on people. And, and you know, she doesn't step over the, the boundaries and doesn't, you know, grab ass or anything like that. But um, still... Why do they have to do that? And, and I got to thinking, you know, is Alan Moore creating gay characters just so he can be mean to them? The other gay character that... Oh, here's a big spoiler, so don't listen to this. But um, a trainer, who's the captain, um, turns out to be gay and in a long-term committed relationship. Very, very nice. Um, but 
he's threatened several times with being exposed as gay, as if this would destroy his career, which I don't quite get because Jack Phantom is out and it hasn't destroyed her career. So that seemed a little odd to me. Um, but here, here's the thing at the end, right? One of the plot lines is about pedophilia, that this other group of... Um, a superheroish group, not really JLA, but modeled on a different one that I can't remember right now, um, has set up a, a system where they take in young wards, you know, and um, end up using them for sex. And some of it's on film, and this is really bad, and they get busted in the end, and so that, that plot line is resolved. And um, it's not clear how old the, the, the young would-be superheroes are, but they look pretty young. They look like they're underage. And this is a bad thing. The one that we focus on is a girl who happens to be um, forced, I'll put that in quotes because it's not clear how much she is forced to have sex with a much older man. And this is portrayed as really, really evil and horrible. Then at the end, you find out that Trainer, when he was jet lad, um, started having an affair with the guy that he ends up in a relationship with who was almost 10 years older than him. And jet lad was only 16 when this happened. And he says well, what's the difference between what we were doing and um, this case that we've just been working on? And his partner says to him, well, the difference was that I really loved you, and I still do. That's not an answer. Um, that is really not an answer. And that discussion raises way more questions than it than it actually deals with. And that's kind of a, a letdown. Um, I think that there are a lot of questions about when it's appropriate for kids to start having sex. And I don't know what Alan Moore's point here was, that it's okay for gay boys to be having sex at the same age, that it's not okay for young girls to be having sex, or it's only okay if your your partner is 10 years older, but it's not okay if they're 30 years older, or it's okay if you really want to do it and the other person loves you. You know, what if you want to have sex with someone and you don't love them and they don't know you, but you're just really hot for them? It raises way, way too many questions, and I thought it was um, too facile an answer at the end, to use a highfalutin kind of word. And again, it it puts gay sexuality in a different place than, than straight sexuality. Um, and I'm just uncomfortable when that sort of thing happens. What if he had done it in parallel? What if it had been... Um, a young girl who was forced to have sex with a much older man, and the captain had been a woman and had been in a relationship with um, an older man, and it worked out. I mean, that seems like a much more parallel situation. So it just gets me thinking about these things, and, and I don't like it when it seems like there's some pat resolution, you know. The difference is because I loved you, as if that was the answer. What else do I have to say about this? Boy, this is turning into a real downer, isn't it? I'm, I'm not meaning to sound like I didn't like Top Ten, because I did like it quite a lot. It was really fun, and the art was great, and there was a lot of cool superhero-y stuff in it. But these underlying issues really bugged me. Um, but I will end on a very up note, which is to say that I loved Joe Pye. Joe Pye is the robot who is a new guy on the force, and um, damn if he doesn't look like Voltron, mofo Voltron, and he's great and he's funny, and I think he's one of the best characters in there. He's very much the straight man. He gets things done. Um, There's definitely robot prejudice in this world, and people are really uh, very suspicious of him when he comes to work on the force, like he's taken jobs away from the the real humans. Um, but he's a great, great character, and um, at the end of the show, I'll explain why I'm calling him Mofo Voltron, but he does. He looks like Voltron, and I love Voltron. So let's take a musical break, and then we will be back with the very wonderful Brad Raider. So I'm talking with the multi-talented artist, 
Brad Rader, who some of you may know from his mainstream comics, particularly drawing Catwoman, also working on Spawn, the animated version for TV. And the other reason that I'm talking to him is because Brad also does wonderful gay porn comics, which, as everybody who listens to my show knows, I'm extremely interested in. So that's part of the reason I wanted to have him. Also, because I've met him a couple of times at various cons, and he's one of the nicest people I've ever met at a con. So thanks, Brad, for taking the time to talk with me today. I really appreciate it. So let me just start off by saying, dude, you won an Emmy. I didn't even realize that until I started doing a little bit of research on you. That's so cool. Yeah. <laughs> Was well, that... I won it for directing on Spawn back in like, its final season at HBO, which would have been 1998, mm-hmm. I believe it was. Yeah. I and the uh, other five directors who directed on that season all won an Emmy. That's... For, like, uh, best... Um, I think it was like best long form animation where like it wouldn't have been a single episode. It would have been like they, they, they somehow or another got the entire season nominated as like one long form thing. So all six mm-hmm. directors were not, uh, got the Emmy. Oh, that's so cool. That so was one of them. Did you go to the Emmy Awards and everything? And like, No, <laughs> no, we couldn't. We missed it because we were in Turkey. We were doing a cruise of the Greek islands for my spouse and I from Athens to Istanbul. So then the night of the award ceremony, we were stuck in like like uh, Kennedy Airport in New York City on our way back. <laughs> so you were just too cool to actually be at the Emmys to get your Emmy Award. Oh, I know. It's so sad. <laughs> well, that's great. And congratulations on winning that, uh, an award well-deserved. Um, so I, I wanted to ask you a little bit uh, to talk just about some of your mainstream comic stuff because I, I know that that's where most of the people who listen to this show probably know you from. So how did you get involved with, with drawing Catwoman? Where did that come from? Well, um, let's see. I've been, I wanted to draw comics ever since I was, I was 12. Mm-hmm. And um, when I graduated from art school, I thought, you know, I'd be hired right away. This was back in 1983, and I'd go to San Diego Comic con every year and get, you know, rejected and <laughs> sulk for nine months and do new, new, do new batch of samples for the next San Diego con. That kept getting me nowhere until 1991, I was storyboarding on the Batman animated TV show, and um, basically that was sort of my entree into do the Batman animated comic book. Mm-hmm. And I did three issues of that, and that was my stepping stone to doing a mini-series for Dark Horse called The Mark, which was edited by Bob Shrek, mm-hmm. who later became, is, I guess, now the uh, main editor on the Batman line. Mm-hmm. And so, um, I, you know, I found he was, like, going to be working at DC. I called him up and said, hey, remember me? You know, I'd like to work in comics again. And uh, gave me a couple fill-ins on Gotham Adventures. And then when the Catwoman book opened up, he was the one who was like the bee in Matt Idelson's ear saying, hire Brad Raider, hire Brad Raider. So that's how I got that. That's great. Well, you know, um, just as I was cruising around the net, I found many, many places where people praised your art on that, particularly saying things like, um, your art is superb and the style is simple and definitely more reminiscent of the animated series than some of the other art that had been um, done on on Batman and Catwoman. But... um, it, it seems like you have a lot of fans out there for your your particular style of art, which must feel really good. Well, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's great having fans. So you were doing some mainstream stuff for a while, and then um, had you been doing independent things all along, or did you just feel at some point you you wanted to branch out and do some stuff on your own? Well, it's uh, the, the I, I basically I got fired off the Catwoman book. <laughs> Oh, okay. And after that, all the doors in comics slammed in my face. I mean, it was like all the work I'd put into getting into comics, it was like I'd never done it, and I would have had to do it all over again, like sampling and testing and going to all the cons and going, hire me, hire me, please. And after having done that twice, it just got to the point where I can't keep doing this. Um And it became clear the only way I would be able to And then I did like a uh, issue of... um fused with Nick, um, uh, Steve Niles, and that fell through after my, you know, it's going to be a long association, and we had a falling out, and um, it became clear the only way I was going to be able to do comics if I, is if I, if I published myself, mm-hmm. um, and, um, and I figured, you know, I mean, I, I've 
some artist friends of mine in the animation and comic biz thinks I'm crazy for doing gay porn. You know, I should do something mainstream and commercial. And um, the problem with that is that I've been trying to do that, you know, since I was 21, but I've always been really creatively blocked trying to anticipate what other people think commercial is. And I figured if I'm going to be paying for this myself, I might as well do what the fuck it is I want. Because <laughs> um, if I don't, all I'll have is, you know, half-assed, pandered shit that doesn't please anybody, including me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I dug through my old, I mean, I used to, was doing a lot of, I did erotic artwork for um, in my sketchbooks from the time, you know, I was like 13 or 14. And the, my first surviving sketchbooks are from around, like, uh, 19 or 21. And I got the idea of doing, like, a Robert Crumb thing, is, like, publishing all of my um, sketchbooks starting from the very beginning. And then it occurred to me that nobody knows who I am, so they're probably not going to, you know, I mean, they know who Robert Crumb is, but they don't know who I am, so I probably ought to, you know, instead of, you know, starting from the beginning, just concentrate on good drawings from all of my sketchbooks. Mm-hmm. And um, when I was doing the sketchbook, um, I mean, doing the first issue, which turned out to be True Adult Fantasy, number one, I I found this old story fragment I did um, in one of my sketchbooks back in, like, 1979 uh, that um, became Chapter 2 of Harry and Dickless Tom. Mm -hmm. And um, when I was, you know, putting the first issue together, I got, I realized I had ideas for continuing the story. And so those became chapters three and four of Harry and Dickless Tom, which, um, you know, were in issue two of True Dolph Fantasy. And then um, I realized that, you know, I had a bunch of other ideas. I, I could sell it out to like about an 80-page graphic novel, and that's what I'm working on now. Wow. Uh, so I don't know if I mentioned this when I talked about True Adult Fantasy, but that, that story, Harry and Dickless Tom, is, is just um, a, a great, crazy story. It's the kind of thing that you would only ever see in a comic book. And Well, actually, <laughs> that's not precisely true. <laughs> so I got the idea for it. Um, from uh, two National Lampoon stories that came oh! out in about 1979. I know exactly what you're talking about. I remember like reading those stories. Students, yes. The high school students, you know, the, the yes. guy wakes up with a vagina and the woman wakes up with a cunt. Yes. I remember those that's, stories. That's that's where I got the idea. No, but they didn't have, like, extreme graphic sex in them the way yours does. <laughs> well, they also, I mean, I, I'm, I'm hot, I, you know, I've always, I eroticized father figures. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know... National Lampoon did not eroticize father figures, for the most part. I mean, they they, they made fun of people who eroticized father figures. Uh, sure. Well, because it was all done by straight white guys. Right. Except, you know, they had, like, um, they had a few female cartoonists in there. and uh, But mostly, yeah, it was like a straight white frat boy club. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think this is an amazing story, and, and thanks for sending me some previews on what's coming up, because it, it's really interesting. What I like about that, that particular story, is that even though um, the sex is central to it, there's actually a, like a plot that surrounds it, so it's not all just about the characters getting together and having sex. Well, yeah, go ahead. Well, I think, that, more. <laughs> I, I think that's always interesting and difficult to do, and it's not something that um, people expect from from erotica or porn or wherever, whatever label we want to put on it. And it's something that I think about a lot because I write porn and there's always this struggle between is the point of the story just to have two people fucking or is there actually a plot around it and then the sex is part of it, an integral part of it, but not the only reason for it to exist. Um, in a lot of the, the porn comics that I've seen, mostly straight stuff, the sex is the main point. There's like no plot or anything that happens around it, and that gets old really fast. Extremely fast. Yeah. Like before like you're done with the first story. Yeah, exactly. So whenever well, I, I find something that's a plot, it's like, wow, this is great. Well, my attitude towards the sex is it's almost like it's a superhero comic, except they're having sex instead of fighting. And you know, I. It's like I have to like have a certain you know in a superhero comic you're supposed to have like a fight scene every few pages mm-hmm. to like you know because it's expected. But a lot of times I remember like in Marvel comics back in the uh, early '70s, which is sort of my uh, my uh, formative period. You know, sometimes they'd have a fight scene. It was like actually fairly perfunctory. 
Mm-hmm. You know, they're just doing it. The real, the real point was the interaction between the characters. And they were, they'd like shove a fight scene in there once or twice per issue just because they knew they had to. Um, and that's not quite my attitude towards the sex, but I was very much, you know, every few pages. But what I wanted to do is, and I'm glad you caught it, was exactly what you're talking about. Like there's a there's a growth arc. You know, the characters start, start out a certain way in the first installment. And by the sixth installment, they'll be completely changed. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a plot, and you know, there's, there's you know, I, I set things up in the first issue that pay off. I mean, first installment that pay off, and later installments, you know, like repetitive images mm-hmm. and all that nice, mm-hmm. like writerly and filmmaking <laughs> stuff that you know you read about in writing and filmmaking courses. So that's you know, I basically, I was trying to do a totally serious art comic with hardcore sex in it, mm-hmm. which is a fairly rare thing, like you say, because mostly, you know, if it's, if, if it's got hardcore sex in it, it's porn, and you don't care about story or character or any of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, are there any um, porn comics out there, whether they're, they're het or, or gay, that you like, besides the ones that you draw yourself? Um... Uh, well, um, I'm sort of interested, um, there's this guy, um, I don't know, I forget what his, his pen name is, so I don't want to write, <laughs> use his real name, but he's doing this comic book called Sticky, the Fanographics is... Oh, I'm a huge fan of Sticky. I've talked about Sticky on the show a number of times. And there, there's a good possibility that we'll be collaborating on a project together at the beginning of next year as soon as I'm done with Harry and Dickless oh. So that's a comic that's done by, um, Steve McIsaac is the artist and Dale Lazaroff is the writer. Right, Dale Lazaroff is his pen name. Yeah, and he's like really, up, really uptight about using his real name. Oh well, he feels he could lose his job. He's he's Dale to us, um, but he's he's a nice guy. I've corresponded with him a little bit, and I I like Steve's art a lot because it's very simple and clean, and he uses a lot of nice. Um, contrast black and white kind of art which i i really dig and i've seen some of his other art that's not uh specifically porn or, or gay porn and i like that too i think he's one of the better artists out there and well, it, yeah I, I saw his stuff and it's like oh yeah this this guy's a pro artist yeah you know, i mean there's no, no question about it so i thought it was amazing that fantagraphics decided to do this i mean i know they publish all those other porn titles um under their eros comics imprint but this was the first gay one that they did and i was so interested to see that on their website they actually are trying to target this a little bit towards women as well well i don't find it that surprising since apparently the the main one of the main audiences for queer as folk was straight women oh yeah but it's it's a thing that i think women have known for a really long time and now the world is just beginning to wake up to that fact (laughs) well apparently uh, there's a whole genre of like science fiction that's (laughs) that's like homoerotic star trek adventure Uh, that's where i was this past weekend was at a star trek slash convention Okay. That's my other life. Apparently the main audience for that is straight women. <laughs> it is. It's all straight women. Well, straight-ish women, I would say. Um, but it's, like I said, it's it's just interesting to me that this has finally become, it's more out that people are acknowledging it and saying, yeah, that's what I like. And I guess we should kind of market this stuff towards the people with bucks who are going to buy it. Right. Does, does that make you feel like, does it make you feel weird at all that your comic is being read and enjoyed by straight women? Hey, man, <laughs> more than Marion. It's like, I'll take anybody I can get. <laughs> well, uh, I will say on behalf of um, the, the straight and straightish women who read your art, we like it a lot, me and my friends. Well, actually, one of the things I was trying to do with Catwoman was draw sexy women who were like individuals. Mm-hmm. But, you know, without that kind of like Jim Lee image where everybody's walking <laughs> around with their back arched thing all the time. <laughs> yeah. I find that so... I I completely agree with you. I I thought, you know, in our little email correspondence, you raised the point that the problem with a lot of erotic artists is that they tend to draw the same figure over and over again. And and I think that's spot on and also true for the way um, artists draw people in general. And that body type that you're just talking about is so common in in comics. And and, and I hate it. I I was having a little um, conversation with someone the other day, and I think most straight guys don't really have a problem with that because for them it's it's expected and they don't see that a it's physically impossible and and b that you know women might not get into that idea um well i i i did storyboards on the stripperella 
animated series a couple years back mm-hmm. that was on the Spike TV network. Yeah. And if I say so myself, I thought I was one of the best artists working on that <laughs> show. I mean, I was the only gay artist, as far as I know, working on the show, but I was, in my opinion, definitely holding my own drawing the, the, the female strippers. Because mm-hmm. I drew them. I mean, I wasn't drawing my type. To me, um, Pamela Anderson and the character based off her was just another character with specific attributes that, you know, it wasn't my ideal woman that I was drawing over mm-hmm, and over again. Mm-hmm. It's just like one other woman. Yeah, yeah. That, that's a really good insight. Maybe we should only ever allow gay men to draw women in comics. Well, you know, it's interesting. You're talking about most storyboard artists. I mean, like in the fifth installment of Harry and Dickless Tom, I'm inking it even as we speak. I'm trying to imitate the style of, of Milt Kniff mm-hmm. during his uh, early Steve Canyon period, like the early 50s. And um, he was, like, really, really good at differentiating his men. I mean, it's, like, stunning, the array of, like, individual characters, uh, just the individual character design. Mm-hmm. But all the women, he has, like, basically three different types. There's a Summer Gleason type. And then there's, like, and he hardly ever deviates from it. It's really weird. You know, it's like the same woman over and over again, exactly to where it's confusing. I mean, Petite, Canyon, um, Summer Gleason. I'm looking at this woman from this, this 1960s strip called Miss Barker who looks exactly like Summer Canyon. Hmm. It's, like, weird. So why do you think and that is? I... I think it's it's maybe because... Well, I, I ran into this problem when I was drawing Catwoman. It's like I was trying to design the Holly character. I mean, because like, I was taking over from... Um, what's his face? Um, I'm blanking on his name. Darwin Cook, who designed this really great character for Selena. I mean, like Ava Gardner um, um, crossed with... Um, Oh shoot! Orson Welles' wife for a while, Rita Hayworth. Yeah. Sort of Rita, Rita Hayworth mixed with Ava Gardner, just like this really specific, cool character. But all of his other women were like the same woman, and you see this like in his later work too. Um, and I wanted to make Holly a specific person mm-hmm. um, that didn't conflict with, you know, Darwin Cook's sort of like non-design of her, and so I was having a real tough time getting somebody who was, like, as different as possible from Selena, but still attractive in her way. Mm-hmm. And I had actually one point I went to uh, Steve Rude when he was like, living in the L.A. area and, and showed him what I'd done so far and what I was trying to do, and he, like, gave me all these pointers on sort of how to prettify her and but make her unique at the same time. And, um, and then there was, like, let's see, the other, the, Selena's, I mean, uh, Holly's girlfriend, um, shoot, the, um, the, the dyke, we were, we based her off Reese Witherspoon. Oh, interesting. Um, I mean, that was like, that was, um, Ed's, uh, Ed's idea. He wanted to look like Reese Witherspoon. Mm-hmm. But I mean, Reese Witherspoon has a really interesting face. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, she's got this jaw and lower lip that stick out more than her upper lip. You know, I mean, if she's like, if you catch her at the wrong angle and made up the wrong way, she's not necessarily pretty. Right. And that's the problem. I think, you know, long, 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 short story made long. I mean, <laughs> people tend to draw the same woman over and over again because it's really hard to draw pretty an individual. Yeah. So I would, um, I, I agree with you. And to build on something else you brought up um, about people who do draw differently are the Hernandez brothers. And fr- oh, yeah. from my point of view, the women that they draw are not pretty, but they're all beautiful. And they're beautiful in each different way with their own body type and faces and attitudes that are very clearly and he expressed. And ages them over time. Yeah. I mean, it's like both of them. I mean, they, 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 they take them like, you know, back when they started drawing in 1983. And a lot of them, you know, they've aged years. And you can still tell it's the same person. Mm-hmm. I think it's amazing. I, my, I'm, I'm in awe of both of them. Uh, I'm, I'm a, a huge fan of theirs, and I, I, I think it just keeps getting better and better, even though the plot lines get really convoluted at times. Um, I, I, one of these days, I'm going to have to start over from the beginning and read the whole <laughs> thing, because especially with Beto stuff, I've totally lost track of 
these characters' story. I think mm-hmm. he's even changed their backstory. He has. He's changed a couple of things, but in interesting ways. I mean, that's part of um, both of their their um, worlds is that they use elements of magical realism in there. So sometimes you're not really sure what's really happening and how much of it is supposed to be magic and how much is just him messing around with you, the reader. But I like that yeah. aspect of it because it's always something unexpected. It's never boring. Well, my problem, I tried reading, like, uh, guess, Manuel Garcia, Garcia, whatever, you know, <laughs> the founder of Magic Realism. Mm-hmm. I tried reading one of his books about 15 years ago, and I was going, my problem with that is I don't know enough about the culture to know what's actually real mm-hmm. and what Magic Realism. I'm kind of going, I am completely lost here. <laughs> and actually, that's my problem with a lot of... Um, a lot. Of, well, I don't have a problem so much with Jaime, but with Beto's stuff, it's kind of like I'm going, huh? <laughs> I, I have no idea if this is supposed to, you know, what you're saying. Yeah. You know, real Memorex. Uh, well, sometimes you just have to give yourself over to the artist and trust that he's giving you something interesting. And sometimes you just have to look at the art if you can't figure out the plot. Yeah. <laughs> But um, I'm, I was interested to, to know that, that you had those opinions because I definitely think that way about it, too. Um, let's talk about what you have coming up. Well, I'm um, right now inking page four of chapter five of Harry and Nicholas Tom. And I've got after this one more chapter, and that will be complete. And then I'll have to get the thing published one way or another. So, and market it one way or another. Is that going to be true adult fantasy number three or something No, it'll else? be its own thing. Its own thing, okay. Um, I had like a German publisher who was mildly interested in it, but then they sort of passed on it because it had vaginas in it and they're vaginophobic. <laughs> and uh, that's what the guy said. That's a new one. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I can't really shop it around before I'm done with it because mm-hmm. it's too weird and too disjointed. I mean, I'm drawing it in six different styles. Um, so, I mean, it, it may be a hard sell. Plus, I may have a one-man show of it, of the artwork in March, oh. and I want to get it out by then. Oh, that's great. You know, sort of to make it a publication party. Yeah. So, chances are I'll have to publish it myself. Um, can you talk a little bit about your, your idea for drawing it in these different styles? I thought that was a, a really neat thing. Well, I mean, I did the first first the first six-page story fragment when I was 19, back mm-hmm. in 1979. And um, when I was publishing the first issue, like I said, I got the idea to continue the story. And then when I was drawing installment, the second, well, the what, what I call installment three, which is really the second installment I drew... I was trying to match that style, but I couldn't. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I just you know, twenty years later, I couldn't match it. Um, so then, when I was doing the third installment, I said, "Screw this! I'm just going to make a virtue of the fact that I can't match styles." And I decided to, with the third installment, imitate um, Starenko's Captain America trilogy. So it's Starenko inked by Joe Sennett. Mm-hmm. Um, and then with the, um, then I knew I'd have to go back. I called it installment. I called the my second installment installment three because I knew I'd have to go back and do an installment one to set up the Harry and Tom's life together before the appearance of the vagina. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I decided when I did that. I mean, basically, I had surgery on my foot back in June. And I was laid up for two months, and that gave me the um, chance to work on my own thing for a while, and so I put the pedal to the middle and wrote the entire, entire storyline of all six episodes and um, decided to do the first episode in the style of Hergé, who does the Tintin, mm-hmm. who did the Tintin series, um, and then the uh, fifth episode in the style of Kniff's Steve Canyon Sunday pages, so each page will be a double-page str- spread, sort of like Promethea, mm-hmm. but like in the style of a Sunday page, including like the logo, Harry and Nicholas Tom in each first panel. And um, and then the sixth installment, I was going to thinking about doing as a storyboard and trying to animate it in Flash and have it on my website at the same time, but I realized that was probably way too... Um, 
ambitious. I was going to say, that sounds pretty damn ambitious. Extremely ambitious. <laughs> and also, it would take about 100 pages of storyboard to tell what I could tell in 20 pages of comics. And so, since I couldn't do the storyboard, which is I wanted to, like, show off my acting ability, so to speak, mm-hmm. I decided to do it in the style of Bernie Craigstein's EC multi-panel page mm-hmm. comics, because he really played with the acting and the minutiae of detail um, in those comics. So I, I figured that'd be the next thing to do in the storyboards. So that was the um, why I was doing all the different styles. Plus, there's something, like, intriguingly postmodern about it. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody else, I mean, you know, the closest I can think of to somebody who does comics this way is Alan Moore when he was doing his uh, Supreme um, series. He'd, like, keep doing it in all these different comics. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think that's really cool. It, it's great, and it's a, a nice, um, I don't want to say in-joke, but it's a nice nod to the people who are familiar with the artists that you're you're working with, that they can look at it and go, oh, I get it, I get it. Well, that depends on whether I can like imitate their styles closely enough. I mean, I I, I'm, I fear I may run into the same problem I ran into when I was trying to imitate um, the style of the first installment with the second. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. nobody would know that I was trying to imitate that style unless I told them. <laughs> Just like you know, nobody would know that um, the Karen character in Catwoman was supposed to be based off Reese Witherspoon unless I tell them that. <laughs> oh. Um. That that's very cool, and um, I, keep me updated on this, and I'll, I'll make sure I tell my vast listenership about this when it's finally um, in print. How, how vast is your listenership? You know, I have no idea. I get a lot of email from people, so I'm thinking that it's probably in the hundreds, but it could well be more than that for all I know. But they're very loyal, the people who listen, very loyal. The cool thing is, because I've talked about gay porn comics so much, I now have straight boys sending me emails saying, hey, did you know that there's a, a comic with these two guys kissing in this one scene? Like, they're looking for this stuff for me. It's great. I love it. I, w- I wanted to ask you about another comic that you did that I actually picked up at Comic-Con, which was Tex, the one that you did with right. um, Mike Wellman. And I thought that was just brilliant and some well-needed um, levity and a really, really mean mockery at a time when we absolutely needed it. Um, how did you get involved with that with Mike? Well, I'm friends with Mike. We met through Rafael Navarro, the artist who does um, Somnambulo because I've worked with Raphael in the animation industry. In fact, he was one of the board mm-hmm. artists on um, Stripperella. Mm-hmm. And um, ran into... Mike is like was helping... Um, I mean, Raph was helping Mike with uh, Mac Afro, Mike, one of Mike's characters. Or oh, speaking of which, don't let me forget, I'm going to be doing a project with Mike um, after I uh, wind up um, hearing Nicholas Tom also. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, and... Um, Oh, shoot, um, we hit it off, you know, and uh, apparently he and Josh Dysart, the writer, had been, like, thinking about doing this comic book for years, ever since Bush got elected, mm-hmm. and um, they decided, like, screw it, let's do it, and they called me because he figured, Mike would figured I would be dependable and I could actually do it in a matter of time. <laughs> um, I don't know why he thought that, but... Um, so we did, and um, I had to sort of like quit my day job for about three weeks <laughs> to do the comic book, and um, yeah. It, it, it's great. Um, for, for people who haven't seen it, you, I, I think there, you can still get it from Mike. Um, he still had him in stock a, a couple months ago, as far as I know, but it's a, a great... I know. Um, well, maybe he's out. I don't know. We sure could use it. Um, it's a great really scathing look at the current administration, and I'm putting quotes around the word administration, um, that plays on uh, George Bush sort of as a comic book hero, who's, of course, a puppet of the other people running it, including um, Donald Rumsfeld, who gets shrunken down into a little kind of um, evil mastermind who rides around on his back. Uh, It's um, amazing. Um, The one thing that I, I have to say that I just loved about the cover and I've seen this comic book reviewed in a couple of different places, and nobody points out the fact that George Bush is drawn in this kind of um, superhero-esque pose, right, with his costume and his cowboy boots and his hat, and has this enormous basket. I mean, it's like right there, right in the middle, and nobody talks about it. It's like the boys don't even want to go there and look at it. And that was the first thing I noticed about it, and I thought, oh, my God, this is great. Well, 
I mean, supposedly he either has like a big wanker or he was like stuffing his crotch when he landed <laughs> on the helicopter. Um, we um, actually that was um, let's see that was um, taken from the Neil Adams cover to Superman two thirty three. Ah, it was like a direct rip off of that. In fact, <laughs> Mike, we were tabling near Continuity um, Continuity Studios at the San Diego Con of two thousand and four. And Mike told me, because we were tabling together, that he brought it by Neil Adams and showed it to him. And Neil Adams burst out laughing. Oh, right. Oh, that's so great. Like, <laughs> the best compliment, because Neil Adams is definitely one of my all-time yeah. faves. Oh, that's so good to hear. That's wonderful. <laughs> well, I, I yeah, love to. The other thing was, um, it was my chance to do um, a National Lampoon story. And one of my big regrets was, you know, National Lampoon no longer exists. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, basically it was like my version of, um, of Jay Gordon Liddy, Agent of Creep. <laughs> In fact, I like swiped a couple panels directly from that. Oh, well, it, it's you know, a... The Frank Springer uh, story. Yeah, it's a wonderful thing. It, it's just great. Uh, in fact, I think that's where I met you for the first time was at Mike's table at that very Comic-Con. And well. we were just oohing and on over it because it was so cool. Um, let's see. There was one more thing I wanted to ask you about, and uh, this was, again, in doing a little research on the net. I found a quote from you, and I don't remember which site it was at, but I thought it was a great provocative quote, so I just wanted you to talk a little bit about it. And it says, quote, I spit on political correctness, unquote. Well, I don't know. I may have said that or I may not have. I mean, to a <laughs> certain extent, I believe in political correctness because, you know, you want everybody to feel included and you don't want to insult people without meaning to. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you know, I mean, short, differently abled lesbians have every right to sit at the table, too. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, you can, like, bend over backwards, you know, trying not to hurt it. I mean, one of the problems was, like, I started working in TV animation back in the mid-'80s, and there was this, like, drive for inclusivity that sort of like you had like in every every crowd scene they had to have like one black one Hispanic mm-hmm. one Asian you know just like you know so unlike real life mm-hmm. even even living in Los Angeles I mean you know tend not I mean people tend to group together as much as they can in their own group mm-hmm. um, you know I just I just found that I mean one of the most interesting shows I worked on that never got aired was um, around the time of the uh, second Blues Brothers movies, Film Roman was doing a uh, cartoon version of um, the Blues Brothers series. It was a series on the Blues Brothers that was being written and masterminded by the guy, I forget his name, who created the Brothers TV show for um, Showtime or HBO. Mm. It was like one of the first TV series with a gay character. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, the story was all about race relations in a non, really non-PC way. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, he was, like, also really, really passionately concerned with race. And, I mean, it's one of the things I loved about uh, Queer as Folk, because on one hand, you know, the characters, when you first meet them, seem like total stereotypes. But then as you get to know them, they have layers and layers and layers of individuality mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that deviate them from the stereotypes. In fact, Directly, often directly contradict the stereotypes. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the things that the, the Blues Brothers TV show did. How interesting. That's always really interesting. Yeah. Um, and I was really sad that um, the, the episode that I directed, the series was canceled uh, before it was ever made. Yeah. Um, you know, the Boondocks series is on now. I haven't seen it yet. I missed it when it premiered last Saturday. But oh, I watched the first, like, five minutes of it and couldn't, couldn't stand it. Was it that bad? <laughs> well, you know, John... You know, you know, breathing on the phone. John uh, watched it too, and he thought it was pretty good. And I just, I just found it really repellent. And I like the car- the comic strip, but mm-hmm. this, the show is just like mean. <laughs> I don't know. So, so uh, what do you think I, happened? I, I, I get tired of watching mean shit all the time. <laughs> you know, I can't watch. I mean, like John's really into Rome, and I like look at it for like about five minutes, and then I have to leave the room because it's so mean. Well, I think that the strip can be pretty mean sometimes, and maybe they just had to up the mean quotient to make it. Well, yeah, but I acceptable. guess the thing is, it's mean in really small doses. Ah, you know, it's like mean in three panels. You uh-huh. know, you know, it's just sort of like you know, no big deal. But when it's like mean for five minutes, it's like oh, <laughs> gross me out. <laughs> 
That's interesting. Well, I haven't I seen... I have a low tolerance for that. was one of the things I was trying to do with Harry and Nicholas Tom is like, on one hand, it's like violent. Like you say, there's fight scenes. And on the other hand, it's not mean. No, I don't think it's mean, and and the characters are nice to each other, and they're they're somewhat introspective, which is unusual for um, those types of characters, right? Like trucker guys, you don't think of them normally as being kind of introspective and thinking well, about their well, lives. Wait, wait till you wait till you read the first episode, because in the first episode they're mean. <laughs> they 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 gay bash this kid who's like on the truck with them. Ah, oh, interesting. And that's that's why. Tom wakes up with a vagina because he's being punished oh. by the vagina guy. Oh, that's so interesting. Wow, that is really cool. Okay, I can't wait to read that. That's going to be great. Yeah, John said, you got to tell her about the vagina guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I find it just so fascinating. You have done so many diverse things in your career. I mean, you've done mainstream comics and you've done something like Tex. Now you're doing gay porn. You did storyboards for Buzz Lightyear of Star Command, which I've actually seen and enjoyed. It's not a bad cartoon. Um mm. You've and because you, especially because William Shatner does the voiceover at the end, which just makes me laugh hysterically. Um, but you've done lots and lots of different things, and I'm curious about um, where you would like to be going and what you'd like to be doing. You know, a couple years from now. What I want to be in, like, uh, what, I, what I'm trying to do is, I'd like to win an Eisner, win an Eisner and a Kurtzman for Harry and Nicholas Tom, <laughs> um, and I'd like to. Um, be able to make a living doing mm. comics. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I'm. It's probably extremely unlikely, but I'd like you know Harry and Dickless Tom to get me more work getting in, work in mainstream comic books, which I realize is probably diluted on my part. <laughs> um, and I've been trying to um, you know, do the get the self publishing thing off the ground, mm-hmm. and I've been trying to like get. I'd like to like have the comics and the gallery thing be synchronistic. I just had a show mm. go up in Amsterdam of my erotic work back in uh, February, the end of January, beginning of February, that moved to uh, Berlin, and I just got the artwork back a couple of weeks ago. Um, I'd like to be able to become a gallery artist mm-hmm. um, and a comic book artist um, at the same time. Um, maybe at exactly the same time. Um, so that's that's sort of where I'd like to go. Oh, that, that's and also, I'd like to, to get be able to collaborate with what writers I want to collaborate with, and mm-hmm. also become a writer myself. Yeah, I feel like I sort of overcame a long-standing um, block when I wrote Harry and Nicholas Tom because I realized that you know I'd like try to write something that then I'd get stuck because I'd be thinking. I don't really know anything about this. I mean, I want mm-hmm. to do like a novel about gay, a graphic novel about gay football players, <laughs> or a graphic novel about like a gay love story set in the Pacific Theater during World War II. Mm-hmm. Like, oh my God, I don't really know anything about it. People will like see my mistakes and laugh <laughs> at me. And I realize, you know, I don't know, really know anything about truckers either. But who cares? Do it anyway. <laughs> exactly. So I did it, and it's pretty good. And, what the hell? Yeah. Well, I'm sure there'll be truck drivers out there looking and going, yeah, you got the facts wrong. You know, this doesn't look like a real truck. But, you know, whatever. I'll give them a no prize. <laughs> oh, well, thank you so much, Brad, for taking the time to talk with me. This has been a really wonderful interview. Um, and I'm so pleased to um, talk to you and to kind of renew our, our acquaintanceship. And uh, happy to bring your art and your opinions to the masses who are listening out there. Well, I, I thank you for letting me blab at length. <laughs> this has been for, really fun. I love doing interviews. They're so much fun. Yeah. Cool.
so I'm going to wrap things up pretty quickly. Um, I wanted to give out the information that I never seem to remember to put in the show, which is that there's a blog at ireadcomics.blogspot.com. Please go there and, and give me some comments if you get a chance. Or you can send me email at lena at troubledscience.com. I love to get email. And um, as people who have written me email can attest, I'll write you back because I love to write back. I want to make a really huge recommendation here, and I'm so ashamed that I haven't mentioned this before. There um, are two wonderful books called Get Your War On. Get Your War On 1 and Get Your War On 2. And these are a collection of strips by a guy named David Rees, and he started doing these strips pretty far back, um, right around the time when the war in Afghanistan was starting. Remember the war in Afghanistan? I thought we won that one or something. Um, He is merciless totally and completely merciless when it comes to the Bush administration, putting that in quotes, their views on the war, and just everything that comes out of the White House these days. And the way he does it is by using clip art. Remember the Kuleshov effect? Well, that's what he does. He uses these generic clip art people that you would find um, for free, you know, not copyright protected stuff. And he puts word balloons by them, and it's always the same people talking, and only rarely does he ever change it. And by God, their expressions do look like they change, depending on what they're saying. And the funniest thing about it is the language that they use to each other. And I'm just going to read a couple of the strips because um, they are, like I said, they're vicious, and they should be vicious, because the things that they address are intensely troubling. So they're funny at the same time, which is the really scary part about it. Um, The reason it's called Get Your War On was because he was making fun of all the people who were so excited about war, like it was this cool video game thing. So it was all about that. Um, He's dealt with more recent things like um, the hurricanes and stuff. Um, And he doesn't put out the strips as often as he used to because he's kind of moved on to other things, but he still does it. I'll put the link into the website where you can go to see the latest strips that he's done. So just to give you a taste of this, uh, here's a recent one. And the clip art is a guy on the phone talking to someone else. Most of his people actually just talk on the phone to each other. They don't ever really interact. It's very plain, and it's just one color, um, either red or black. So the guy says, which agency is filled with more assholes and idiots, FEMA or the FDA? And the woman he's talking to replies, hmm, well, the FDA's motto is, we'll approve any clump of manure um, as long as it's in the form of a pill and is not Plan B. On the other hand, FEMA's motto is, our agency was actually run by Michael Brownie Brown, the world's dumbest man. Please kill us. And in the last panel, the guy says, is it a coincidence that both agencies' acronym begin with the same letter as, fucking fire all of them? If you think that's funny, you'll enjoy the rest of it. Let me read you another one. Um, This was published at the end of September, right after the hurricane. And um, it was in response to some stuff that was coming out about how um, the budget might need to be cut, you know, with human services, like it just was this past week, and um, how that kind of played into the whole you know, all those poor people in New Orleans. So in the first panel, the woman on the phone says, I hope they do cut some federal benefit programs. If there's one thing Katrina showed us, it's that there are too many poor people just floating around. Second panel, the guy says, yeah, maybe a big cut in the food stamp program would motivate those layabouts to get jobs once they're done decomposing in fetid water, of course. The last panel, the woman says, poor people are obviously abusing their food stamps anyway. Remember how all of their corpses were bloated? Is that mean or what? It's great. I love it. The other incredibly cool thing about David Rees, and the other reason you should buy these books, is that all of the royalties from both of those books are donated to mine detection and dog center teams. So they are clearing uh, landmines and unexploded ordnance in Afghanistan. Could there be a better cause for this kind of thing? I don't think so. Um, David Rees is just a wonderful guy, and uh, I have to thank Ginger for giving me this book when it first came out, and I refer to it often. It still makes me laugh, and I'm happy that this stuff is still up on the web where you can get it. Um, The reason I say Mofo Voltron, and it's actually spelled out in Get Your War On, is that suddenly Voltron appears in somebody's office and starts talking about world domination, and the guy whose office he's in just keeps saying, I can't believe that fucking Voltron is in my office. He's calling all his friends going, Voltron's in my office, Mofo Voltron's in my office. And uh, I just thought that was great, because that's what Voltron is, he's a bad mofo. So to close out this show, I'm going to play a little piece of different music. Um, talking with Brad Rader, you know, he did work on this Buzz Lightyear movie, which I actually really liked. I saw it, and it was pretty funny, and they got Tim Allen's voice for it. And at the end, 
there's a song that William Shatner did. He, William Shatner. And it's called To Infinity and Beyond. And it's very funny in the way that Bill does things. And it ends with a rousing chorus. So it's very uplifting. So I thought I would close with that. And uh, I'll be back next time with lots of new things to talk about. See ya. To infinity and beyond. We're blasting through the dawn. To another galaxy. Won't you come along with me to infinity and beyond? To infinity and beyond. Turn those thrusters on. Faster than the speed of light, we will carry the fight to infinity and beyond. Good guys, we can fly far across the starry sky, past the moon and past the sun, with no good deed left undone. There is a place in outer space where you can join in the fun to infinity and beyond. We will sing this song. So say goodbye. Now it's time to fly to infinity and beyond. Sun with no good deed left undone. There is a place in outer space where you can join in the fun to infinity and beyond. We will sing this song. So say goodbye. Now it's time to fly to infinity and beyond. So say goodbye. Now it's time to fly to infinity and beyond.